morning. We're going to start our service today with a message from the junior church kids. Aren't they? <laughs> Come back.
year in Junior Church, we have been talking about missionaries. A missionary is someone who tells others about God. We can be missionaries in school, in Buffalo, or in Houghton, or in the world. We have been learning the Bible verse this year. It is Mark sixteen fifteen. Last week, we talked about a little boy who shared his food with 5,000 people. We talked about how God can make big things out of little things like making a tree out of a seed, a puppy into a big dog, how lots of little snowflakes can make a big snowman, a snowman and how one penny cannot do a lot. But a a lot of pennies can. We want to turn our pennies. We want to turn our pennies into a lot of pennies to help other children who need food and want to go to school. We thought if everyone in our church can give a few pennies, how it will turn into a really big pile of pennies. We will be back. We will be in the back of the church with banks we made after each service of the month of October collecting change. Thank you for helping us. Thank you. Thank you. Please stand and join us as we continue in worship together.
given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You enable us to be people that we could never be apart from the power of your spirit. You make us brave. You make us compassionate and kind. You give us the power to overcome. Thank you, Father. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. Heaven came and kissed the earth. Prophets long ago foretold his birth. He became the living word to show the human heart its worth. Oh, whether I'm in want or plenty, whether I'm in health or ill, our God promises his children he will.
Father, we want to give you thanks today that you are good and merciful, that you, uh, you bind up our broken hearts in healing. You bring hope to us in our struggles, in our, in our feelings of despair and hopelessness. We thank you that you are the God that you declare yourself to be, and we see it every day of our lives. We want to thank you and praise you. Father, you not only love our words of adoration and praise, but you love it when we bring our burdens and concerns to you because it is a sign that we trust you and that we believe you are who you say you are. You care about us. You care about all that you've created. And so today we bring to you our burdens and our concerns. There are people here this morning who are grieving today. Grieving loss and pain and heartache. Things broken. And we ask, Father, for your healing grace upon every grieving heart. There are those among us here and connected to us who are struggling with physical issues. Who are struggling with burdens and the brokenness of mind and body and soul and spirit. And we ask for your healing grace upon each of them. We thank you this morning, Father, for your work in our relationships. Relationships that can get messy and difficult and cause us so much pain. And we pray that you will heal what is broken. That you will restore what is not right. As we think about just the demands of life. Studies. Work. trying to follow you in the best way that we can. And we ask for grace. We ask for help and your mercy upon each of us. Father, we thank you for the ministry of this church. And as we saw the the children here a few minutes ago, we're so grateful for the children that you've given us. And we take seriously the responsibility to nurture them in the faith. And even now, a lot of our children are in Sunday school. And they are in children's church and junior church. And we pray, Father, that, that you will speak into their lives as we teach and love and care for them and nurture them. Be glorified and help them. That they, as they grow and mature, they will want more than anything else to know you and follow you. We thank you, Father, for churches around us. We pray today for the Lockport Wesleyan Church and Pastor Matt Rose. Bless this congregation of believers as they reach out to their community. May their their witness be one that reflects you and glorifies you and draws people to you that they might experience your life-giving grace. Father, we think about the needs of our nation. We are a divided nation. We are struggling to, with, with who we are and our identity and, and issues between us. And we pray that you would bring healing because we learn to love each other and care for each other. We pray, Father, for the people of Puerto Rico and others who have been affected by recent hurricanes and earthquakes. And we pray, Father, 
The places where there is not enough food and water and shelter and just the basic needs of life, we pray that you will cut through all the red tape and get the things there that need to be there so that people can exist and that the reconstruction can begin. And we pray that you would help your church to be a a place of hope. And Father, we pray for our world, places of war, bring peace. Refugees who struggle to find a place to live, to exist in safety. We pray that you would bring safety to them. And we pray that the situations that, that cause them to need to flee would be ended. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters around the world who are sharing the gospel, living their lives for you. And we ask, Father, that you will work powerfully in them in difficult circumstances. And help us here to be a witness to the people around us as the Grace Project continues to help us be a church that reaches out and cares and helps to folks who are right around us and even here within our congregation. We pray, Father, that you will give us your heart to love and to care through your Holy Spirit's grace. Thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for uh, all that you do in our lives. May your word continue to speak into our hearts and to come alive for us. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. reading from Obadiah today. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the cliffs of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Temen, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered in shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth 
in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their, fugit their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drink on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's take a moment and uh, share what a greeting with others here in worship today. Introduce yourself perhaps to someone you don't know. So do you know the, um, the short story that Rudyard Kipling wrote, The Man Who Would Be King? Anybody know that story? Seen that movie? Okay. It was written in 1888. It's about a couple of guys who are in India. They're, they are um, uh, British guys in India. They've been soldiers, and they want more out of life. And they decide that what they want is to be kings. And they're looking around for a, a place where they can, they can infiltrate, they can exert some authority and power, and the people will make them kings. And so they travel to a place, and, and uh, they get their wish. They become kings. Through hardship and struggle and pain and agony, they become kings. Unfortunately, it all unravels for them. By the end of the story, they, it's disaster. But when I read that story, I thought to myself, there is something there that Kipling has touched on that is, is, a, is a struggle of every human heart. We all want to be kings. We all want to be in charge. We all want to be in control. We all want to have power over something, over somebody, over some place. 
There's something in us that says, I want to be the master of my life. And I wouldn't mind being the master of somebody else's life too. And there is something of that dynamic of our yearning to be in control, our yearning for power, our yearning to be king, that the prophecy of Obadiah touches on. Now, I suspect that most of us have not spent a lot of time with the prophet Obadiah. I would not, I won't ask this question, but I would wonder how many of us even knew Obadiah was in the Bible. That could be a whole thing we talk about, right? I mean, most of us, when we are, you know, it's not a place that we go to often. If somebody comes to you with a, with a life crisis, probably the first thing you're not going to say is, well, here, let me show you something from Obadiah. You know, that's not the place we go. We don't memorize Obadiah. We don't talk about Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the whole entire Old Testament. That's why we read the whole thing this morning. It's just not that long. I mean, part of me wonders, it's such a short prophecy, it, it hardly seems worth getting dressed, much less walking all the way to Edom. But it is, it is and, and the other part about it that doesn't really connect with us is it's not even about God's people. I mean, we understand that when the, prophets, when the prophets talk about Israel or Judah, they're talking about God's people and Christians are God's people now. And so we, we see a connection, but this is talking to Edom. We don't even know who Edom is. It doesn't seem to have any application to us, but it does. You'll notice in the prophecy, if you're following along, that sometimes it's mentioned to Edom, sometimes Esau. And that's because the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And Esau is the twin brother of Jacob, who later is named Israel. And the nation of Israel are his descendants. Jacob and Esau are the grandchildren of Abraham, the sons of Isaac. And even before they're born, they're fighting with each other. Scripture says in the womb, they're wrestling. And, and when, after they're born, they continue fighting with each other. Their lives are basically one drawn out, continuous argument and fight with each other. And they keep taking advantage of each other and, and going after each other. Eventually, they come to the place that Jacob flees because he has so, he's stolen his brother's inheritance and he runs. Years later, he comes back with a lot of fear and trembling as to what he's going to find from his brother. But they do reconcile. And they spend their days, the end of their days, in relative peace, but not their descendants. Their descendants are continually fighting with each other. And when the Israelites come up out of Egypt, they ask for permission to pass through the land of Edom. These are, you're our brothers. We're just walking through. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to take anything. We just want to pass through. And the Edomites say, no. Find another way. We're not helping you. And as they battle with each other, you eventually get to the place centuries later, probably uh, near the, uh, probably in the middle part of the 6th century, could be more into the 5th century, is probably when Obadiah writes this prophecy. But it is about what Edom does to Judah when the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem and take the people into exile. And as, as the Babylonians are dragging the Israelites out of Jerusalem, the Edomites are standing back, celebrating, throwing parties, rejoicing, gloating, and even helping. And this prophecy is a word of God to them for the violent behavior they have, they have done toward 
their brothers. It reminds us that God cares about how we treat each other. The book of Amos talks to us about injustice. We talked about that last week. Some of the other prophets talk about it as well. Obadiah is saying, God is, is warning you, God is judging you because of the violence you have done against your brothers. Their violence was both aggressive and passive. They actually took swords up against their, their brothers as the Israelites fled the city and some of them escaped the Babylonians and the Edomites were standing, were waiting outside of the town for those of them to show up and they were cutting them down. And those they didn't kill, they turned back over to the Babylonians and said, hey, we found some stragglers, here you go. They didn't help them. It wasn't just aggressive. Some of it, they stood back and just laughed at what was happening to Israel. And God is concerned about how we treat each other. God is concerned about injustice and violence. And, and, and this, is the, this is God's wrath because and often we talk about idolatry and God is upset about idolatry. But part of the reason God's upset about idolatry is because it always leads to injustice. People who are... Who are full-on followers of Jesus, it does not lead them to injustice. But people who are idol worshipers, people who are self-worshippers, people who live their lives for anything other than God, ultimately it's going to lead them down a path to injustice. It will mean taking advantage of people. It will mean hurting people. And, And God is concerned about that because he cares about people. Sometimes a, a passage like this bothers us because it, it, you know, God's wrath is, is, is described here in pretty, pretty clear detail. And we think, ooh, I'm a little bit nervous about a God like that. But don't we want to worship a God who cares about injustice? Don't we want a God who cares about evil? Don't we want a God who says, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to just ignore that. Because if God doesn't do anything about injustice, it means one of two, for one of two reasons. Either because he doesn't care or he's too weak to do anything about it. And either alternative is not good. Either alternative is the kind of God that we don't want to worship. We want a God who cares about injustice. And we want a God who has enough power to do something about injustice. And that means there's going to be anger. And there are going to be consequences. And Edom stands up on the high hills of where they live and feel like we're in safety. It doesn't matter what we do because no one could ever get to us. And God says to them, you can go as high as the stars if you want to. I'll find you. And I'll hold you accountable for what you've done. But it's not just the fact that they are, they are being violent toward people. It's that they're being violent toward Israel, towards God's people. And God is concerned about that, not just because my people are special, so don't touch them. But it's because Israel is the means through which God is going to bless the rest of the world. Israel is the means through which God's purposes, God's great plan of redemption and transformation and flourishing is going to take place. They are his chosen people, not just so they can be special, but so that they can, they can show the rest of the world what Yahweh is like. 
And when Edom tries to prevent that from happening, they are actually being, they're working with the evil one who continually is trying to thwart God's great plans of redemption and transformation and flourishing. And so God says to the nations, you'll notice in verse 1, it says, all the nations gather around, I want all the nations to help me, I want all the nations to see, this is what happens to people who try to keep me from accomplishing my great purposes for, my, for the world. And again, do we want a God who has these great plans for people, has these great plans for his creation of flourishing and blessing and joy and peace and transformation and all of the great things that God wants for us? Do we want a God who has these great plans, but when evil comes against it, stands back and says, well, I better not do anything about that. Because here's the truth. If God doesn't address evil, we're all dead. We all will succumb to the powers of evil. And Obadiah is telling us God is not going to let that happen. God's plan, God's purpose is going to be accomplished. And the reason we know that is because when you get to the very last words of this prophecy, which I think are the key to the whole thing, it says, and the Lord Yahweh will be king. He's the king. And the king cares about his kingdom. Now, when it's in future tense, And you might get the sense that he's saying someday, one day, way out there sometime, at some point in time, Yahweh will be king. Now we just have to wait because he's not yet. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God has always been the king. God always will be the king. But on that day, everyone will see it. Everyone will know. Everyone will understand. He will, have, he will defeat evil completely, fully, finally. And he will be king. But it's not just about that day. It's about, I think, also the day when Jesus comes and he comes as the very presence of the king. Jesus talks about the kingdom more than a hundred times in the Gospels in a variety of ways. But he keeps coming back to he has come to bring the kingdom. He says the kingdom will be coming, but the kingdom also has come. And when Jesus comes, everything changes. Jesus comes to reveal what the king is like. Jesus comes to tell us that the king is in control and he rules. And that's why Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, therefore, on that day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's why when John looks in his revelation, he says, on that day, On that day when God ushers in the kingdom in all of its fullness and everyone sees, what will they see? They will see that Jesus is Lord. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. The kingdom of our Lord, Christ, has become the kingdom. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. 
It is the, it's, the, it's the hallelujah chorus that he's describing. Jesus is Lord. God is the king. And when we come to this table, we are coming to celebrate that God is the king. We're coming to declare that we believe God is the king. That Jesus has won the battle. That we are resurrection people. That God is our king and we celebrate him because he is a king of compassion and patience and loving kindness and goodness and mercy. He is a king who addresses evil. He is a king whose plan for the world will not be thwarted to bring flourishing and grace and mercy and life. That's why this is not just a word for Edom or the nations. This is a word for God's people. This is a word for people who are minority exiles in a culture that is antagonistic toward the king. That's subversive toward the king. That opposes the king. When, when Obadiah declares this prophecy and when it's put into writing, the Israelites are scattered all over the world. And Obadiah writes this as a means of hope. I mean, this is not a word that's in the scriptures of the Edomites. This is a word that's in the scriptures of the Israelites. And there is a word here for Israel. And the word for Israel is, because God is the king, and his kingdom cannot be thwarted, and even though you are exiles in a foreign land, and you live among people who are antagonistic toward the king, there's hope. Because Jerusalem is going to be restored, and the prodigal father is going to welcome all of his children home. And it will be a holy place. A place of celebration and rejoicing. A place where all the purposes of God are seen and lived. It is a place where where people will be holy and righteous just like God is. It is a place where the primary characteristic to describe it is love. Because that's the primary characteristic to describe Jesus and the Father. It is a place where all of the desires of God's kingdom will be fulfilled. And every person there wants what God wants. Wants the kingdom to be what God says it is. And it will be a place of hope and reconciliation and rejoicing and transformation and flourishing. Just like God intended from the beginning of creation. And that is important. For Israelites living in foreign lands, but it's also important for Christians living in a culture in which we are a minority. We live in a culture that is antagonistic toward the king and his kingdom, whose priorities are different from the king and his kingdom. But here's the thing that I've realized. When you, know that, when you know that God is the king and Jesus is Lord, you live differently 
as minority exiles. You live with a sense of confidence and hope that what we're going through is not the last word. That what we're dealing with is not the last word. And when you begin to realize that, you start, you start taking a stand for the king. And you start being identified with the king, whatever that may mean in terms of consequences in the culture. But it also means that you take a stand and you stand up for the king in a way that exemplifies the nature of the kingdom. What Obadiah is calling us to is to be people who act and live as if we believe that God really is the king. That Jesus has won, that Jesus is Lord, that we are resurrection people, that the battle is done, that God is in control. And when you know that, there is this confidence that doesn't lead to arrogance and gloating and boasting about all the bad things that are happening to people that might be our enemies. It leads to a life of compassion and love and grace and mercy. We start taking our hands off of our lives and surrendering them to Jesus. We don't have to fight for our rights anymore. We are willing to give up our rights Because it's in the best interest of the people around us. And when people around us are hurting and troubled and and facing great pain, we never feel good about that. No matter who they are or what got them to that point, we feel compassion and we lament and we hurt and we seek to help every way we can. Just like Jesus. The reason Jesus could live the way he did is because he knew. He knew what the end was going to be. He knew that, that, that God was the king. And because he knew that, he could even give his life. And when you know that, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and all the teachings of Jesus make a lot more sense. When you know that God is the king and Jesus is Lord... You understand that you're blessed when you mourn for the pain and the sins and the struggles of this world. When you know that Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord and God is the King, you, you see that blessing comes out of humility, not out of arrogance. You understand that when Jesus says, blessed are, 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 the, are the peacemakers, Instead of those who are continually stirring up chaos and trouble. You understand when Jesus says that you you give your life to receive it. And you understand what Paul writes right before he talks about every knee bowing and every every tongue declaring that Jesus is Lord, you understand what he says right before that when when he says to the Philippians, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbled himself, took on human flesh, and became obedient to death 
even death on the cross. One way you can you can live like that is when you know that God is the King and Jesus is Lord. And that's our calling. As the calling of Obadiah to the Israelites, is the calling of Obadiah, is the calling of the gospel to us. And when we come to this table, we come in thanksgiving for who God is, and we come in adoration and praise that God is the King. And we come asking God, we come in confession, and we come with a desire in our hearts that God would make us more and more like the King. And we come to this table in humility, recognizing how far we have to go, but asking God to keep moving, keep working, keep changing us. We're going to take just a couple moments of silence to, uh, to declare that we believe God is the King and Jesus is Lord. And to ask God, as we prepare to come to this table, to, to work in our lives, to give us grace to look more like Him. Father, we want to thank you and declare that we know you are the king and we could not be happier because we know the kind of king you are. Thank you for your power and for your grace that addresses evil and injustice and violence. And your power and your grace that desires to make us like you. Help us to surrender all that we are to let you do what is your plan for us in the world. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do in remembrance of me. As you're released by Rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. We have trays of bread and cups in the back if you prefer, rather than coming to the front. And I have gluten-free wafers here. If you'd like those, just let me know as you come forward. I, I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. Perhaps this is the first time that you've ever worshipped here, but... 
If you come today with your heart open to Christ, with the, an acknowledgement that, that Jesus is Lord and that your desire is to look like him through his grace, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father. You paid him love.
Amen. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.